Welcome to The Last Word on the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Every week we take a last look at the message from the most recent Crosstalk. Enjoy this short conversation and stay tuned for the full message directly after. Good morning and welcome to The Last Word. My name is Johnny and I'm joined here by JD. Glad to be here this morning. And Cameron. I'm gladder to be here this morning. Mm, she went up to you, JD. <laughs> Technically, Same. grammatically, it would be you are more glad. You can't be gladder. It's okay. But it's right. I think it's funner <laughs> to say gladder. Oh, gosh. Um, so killing me. <laughs> killing me. Before we start out, uh, JD, I'd like it if you could paint the scene that we're talking about here in Exodus 34 in about like one minute. Oh, that's a great question because <laughs> that's actually what we're going to be talking about at Crosstalk this week is we will be painting the scene, but... Uh, very immediately in Exodus chapter 34, this is when God places Moses in a cleft in the rock and covers him with his hand until his glory passes by. And when God passes by Moses, he hears these words proclaimed by God. Now, the kind of the immediate context is you have the golden calf, the story of the golden calf, which has just happened. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people of Israel five Times Now, that last time, uh, God says, like, I am not going to go with you guys because I can't be around you sinful people, but I'm going to send an angel. And Moses says, no, we're going to stay here at the mountain until you go with us. Otherwise, we're not leaving. If it's not you, we're not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And God finally says, fine, my glory will be with you. And Moses says, well, show me your glory. And that's like the immediate context here for Exodus chapter 34. Moses has said to God, show me your glory. And when he does, this is what he hears proclaimed by God himself. Mm. Thank you for that. Yeah, very well put. So the Bible, which is the most popular book in human history, it actually has the most cross references in any book out there. It's pretty cool. It has around 64,000 cross references, you know, give or take. And so why do y'all think Exodus 34, six through seven stands at the top being the most cross-referenced scripture in the Bible? Well, I think one, there's like the kind of the most obvious part to this is that this is God describing himself, which is something significant for us as readers of the biblical text is this is God talking about who he is. And because this is God talking about himself and not human authors that are ascribing characteristics or attributes to God, I think it becomes this very integral part of how the biblical authors understood the nature and the character of God and uh, like how they began to think in the biblical imagination of who God was and how he interacts with his people. And so I think that in those ways, it becomes this deeply ingrained part of uh, the biblical imagination. And so when people think the biblical, not people, when the biblical authors think about the character of God, they go back to this because it's a deeply imp- ingrained part of ancient Israelite culture. Mm-hmm. I think about um, all the references in the Old Testament to Jesus and like how it points to mm-hmm. the ultimate Messiah and Savior that's going to come one day. And I think about all the times, and JD even mentioned a couple of them, like in Numbers and in Jonah in the Old Testament where it requotes and um, points to Exodus 34, uh, 7, 6 through 7. Um, and I just think about like 
how cool is it like that we can hold on to this Exodus 34, 6 through 7, the character of God, God describing himself, declaring who he is, not only like throughout the rest of like the Old Testament down to like Malachi, but then also like that remains true of God for the rest of human history. And I feel like the cross, and like we just talked about this at Cross Talk too, like the cross is like, the ultimate looking at this picture of God that he's painted of himself mm. because he is abounding in love, steadfast in love and faithful, but he also by no means clears the guilty. And so I feel like it's so cool that we have a God who um, inspires divinely through scripture, all throughout scripture mm-hmm. to declare who he is over and over again, because I think it really gives us hope and we can know that that's true and we can hold fast to that. Mm. Preach can, preach. That was so good. I think that Numbers 31, 34 is the most referenced scripture uh, for me. It's mm. 64,000 donkeys. <laughs> um, I just wanted to throw that out there. Very important scripture. 64,000 references, 64,000 donkeys. Oh my goodness. Is that a <laughs> double cross reference? Um, anyways, so Moses has doubts of God, and then God shows a glimpse of himself to him, describing his attributes, and Moses bows and begs to God to be with him and his people. But later on, Moses still acts out against God. So why would someone who's had such a history-making moment with God still go against him in a moment? I think, uh, are you speaking directly about when Moses, instead of speaking to the rock and it provides water, Moses strikes it with his staff and it provides water. I think you get a a moment of frustration. And I think that that's largely... Uh, not due to his relationship with God, but largely due to his role as the intercessor and the mediator for the people. Mm -hmm. Moses is frustrated by the grumbling of the Israelite people and acts out of that frustration in a way that disobeys God's divine Mm -hmm. command. And so I think that um, it, it is less about his relationship with God. It's more about his relationship as the leader of this group of people. And I think that uh, it really points in a lot of ways to uh, the need for a messianic savior who will Mm -hmm. offer his life as an intercession for the guilty. And that's really what Moses does over and over and over again, going before God on behalf of the people. And it just continues to demonstrate that as the Israelites continue to grumble, as they continue to complain, as they say, let's go back to Egypt, it points to this need of a messianic savior because of our own distrust, frustrating distrust of God, which is really what Moses demonstrates in that moment is this moment of frustration towards the people. And I think that that's still true of us today is our frustrating tendency to mistrust God and to trust in things of our own creation. Yeah. And so I think that, does that make sense? Yeah, that's okay. so good. Okay, That's very well put. Mm-hmm. Man, I don't know if I can stop that. No. <laughs> he just described it so really well. did it all. <laughs> but I think JD hit the nail right on the head of, yeah. it just points to our need for a Messiah and a need for a Savior. And I think, you know, we know God used Moses in many mighty ways, but also Moses wasn't perfect. I mean, before mm-hmm. that, he had murdered somebody and then tried to bury the body <sighs> as if any way that was going to conceal it and hide it mm-hmm. from God. <laughs> um, and so thank God that we have Jesus who is perfect and who is our intercessor and who is our advocate and everything that we need um, in a perfect way. Yeah, very, very well put. So how should me as a 22-year-old college student change the way that I do sports, school, and relationships after hearing my creator clearly laying out his attributes here in the scripture. I think 
what I go back to is, and the most significant takeaway in this passage is the promise of stability and a predictability in God's response to his people. And that's what we see in his character, that he is merciful and he is just, and that brings a degree of assurance that I always know where I stand with God. Like I don't have to wonder where I stand with God because I know there's a predictability in his character that he's never going to act outside of his character. And so he's going to be like this for every generation, not change from generation to generation. And this constancy of God to me is the thing that provides grounding for our life. That when um, everything else is up in the air, when my relationship is a mess, when school is really hard and overwhelming, when I don't know if I'm gonna be able to work enough to be able to pay my rent, Mm -hmm. that there is a God who is constant Mm -hmm. in the midst of all of it. And as the scriptures say that he is an anchor for my soul. Mm -hmm. And so in those times of anxiety, in those times of feeling overwhelmed, uh, depressed, all of these things, where do I go? I go to the constant hope for my soul. I turn back to a God who is constant when everything else is not. And that ultimately we do see, like you said, Cam, come to fruition in the person of Jesus. And that cross is the same when Jesus hung on it 2000 years ago, it's the same today and it's gonna be the same tomorrow. And in it, we see the character of God manifest Mm -hmm. for all of us. And so I hang my hat going back to that consistency in God's character, the predictability mm-hmm. of the message of the gospel. Mm-hmm. I know I think about the statement when God says, I am, and knowing that when he said that, however many years ago, um, he still is the I am. Mm-hmm. And with the the scripture we went over this past week, Exodus 34, six through seven, God just is who he is. And like, for me, I think about, okay, if God is who he is, then God will never ever sin against me. Mm-hmm. And if God will always be, be the same and be constant and he'll never sin against me, then that makes him the most trustworthy person and being that I have in my life. And if he's the most trustworthy person and being in my life, then I can depend on him mm-hmm. and everything because he's never going to change. Same with my neighbor, my friends, even people who like I have a hard time loving. Like God is that for them, for mm-hmm. every person. He's going to always be everything to every person for all time for those who turn to him and who turn to his son, Jesus Christ. So, So good. Great stuff, y'all. Y'all really brought their wisdom today. <laughs> All right, JD, would you like the last word? Absolutely. Uh, this upcoming week, we're going to continue to dive into uh, kind of this this uh, understanding of God's character as revealed in the scriptures. And what we're specifically going to do is we're going to look at the immediate context for these verses in the book of Exodus. And they, as we kind of talked about earlier, this immediately follows the story of Israel and the golden calf. But in order to really understand this story, we're going to go back even farther. We'll look at the entirety of the book of Exodus up until this point and God's interactions, God's saving um, mercy towards the people of Israel to bring them out of slavery in Egypt up until this point. And so I'm excited for what this has to bring for us. And we're ultimately going to just explore this together. So I'm excited to see you guys on Thursday and we will see y'all then. Man, I see so many new faces here tonight. Uh, I want to be the first, hopefully not the first to greet you. If you guys are new here or maybe the first time in a long time, my name is JD. It is my privilege to pastor this community that we call Crosstalk. Before we go any farther, 
Brooklyn, I am going to embarrass you. Can you just, I won't make you stand up. Can you just put your, like, left hand up? <laughs> to do this for a long time, and I'm sorry that <laughs> you deserve, both of you guys deserve to be celebrated for what you get, the, the season of life that you guys are entering, and so congratulations, we are really happy and supportive of you guys as you guys walk into this next stage of your relationship. But beyond that, so far this semester, we've been in this series where we have been looking at the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. Now, these first three chapters tell a story. And it tells us a story about the creator, God, who brings into existence a good creation over which he appoints human beings, male and female, to rule, to be his divine representatives here on the earth. The problem is that human beings disobey God there in the garden. Sin enters the world, and the perfect fellowship that existed between God and human beings is broken. And we now, in our contemporary context, live in a broken and fallen world as a result. Now, when we think about this story, the first thing that we need to recognize is that God is the main character. He is the principal protagonist in the biblical story. The Bible really is a story about God, which then leads us to ask the question, well, if the Bible is a story about God, what is God like? What is God like? Now, that's what we're going to spend the rest of the semester exploring is who is God in his character? Who is God? And we're going to do that by looking at how the character of God is revealed in the Bible. Now, the first place that we find this description of God's character is in Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, and this is this description of God by God. To make this even more simple, this is God describing himself in Exodus 34. In our culture today, what is the most quoted verse in the Bible? Somebody. Yeah, John 3.16, right? Can somebody quote it for me, since we're all on the same page here? There, there we go. Thank you, thank you. So, a good way to think about this passage in Exodus chapter 34 is that it is the John 3.16 of ancient Israel. This is the most remembered, it is the most quoted, it is the most referenced passage in the entire Old Testament. So let's go to Exodus chapter 34, which is when God places Moses in a cleft in the rock and covers him with his hand until his glory passes by. And when God passes by Moses, he hears these words proclaimed by God. Now, before we get to reading it, I just want to kind of develop a little bit of an analogy here. Let's imagine a culture where there is a single movie scene that is so epic that everyone grew up watching that movie and has seen it. Does anybody have any good examples? Star Wars, for sure. Luke, I am your father. I think about The Princess Bride. Uh, I have a really bad accent for it, but the, hello, my name is Amigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. That one, right? You have Sandlot. You're killing me, Smalls. Like, these are things that I, 
and I don't really believe that there is a movie for, I've spent an unreasonable amount of time thinking about this. I don't think that there is a single movie that transcends all of Western culture. I think that, the, that there isn't some one iconic movie, but we can think of it in these terms. So whether it's one of these quotes or one of the ones that you guys have in your brain, go back to our analogy. Imagine that there is a moment when you are with your friends and all you have to do is say like the first two words of that scene and everybody immediately knows how to finish your sentence. How everybody knows exactly what moment you are referencing. For me in college, it was the cool beans scene from Hot Rod. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that one, but the cool beans. Cool beans. <laughs> well, then they start to say it in all of the different accents and it turns into like the rap song. I know Johnny knows the whole thing. I was trying to convince him on the spot to do it for us. But now in your guys' friend group or maybe even in your family, you guys might have a saying. It might be a song lyric, it might be a scene from a movie, or just an inside joke that has become a part of the way that you speak around those certain people. And it begins as this conscious choice when you use that as an attempt to connect. It's an attempt to relate to this other person, to remember a specific moment, or even just to demonstrate the closeness of a relationship. That you can say one thing and you know that that person who gets it is closer to you than anybody else in the room. And these conscious choices to use these words, to use these memorable things, then become this unconscious point, part of our vocabulary. We start to use it even without thinking about it. It becomes ingrained in us. And that's what's happening here with this description of the character of God. This is how ancient Israel understood who God was, and it became so ingrained in them that it became a part of their vocabulary. It framed the way in which they understood the Creator God and His relationship with them. These verses are the first description that we see in the Bible of who God is. Like I said earlier, it's also the most quoted passage in the Old Testament, 27 times the biblical authors of the Old Testament quote this verse in their writings. 27 times this is referenced by other authors in the biblical writings. Now, looking at these instances help us to discern how the biblical authors understood the original verses and the character of God. So let's start here at the original in Exodus. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, him being Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, at first glance, the first half of these attributes are wonderful. They're awesome. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and sin and transgression. This stuff is awesome. 
But then the second half seems to take a turn and it depicts God in a very different light. I would almost say if you were to isolate this on its own without the rest of the context, you would see and kind of think of God as vengeful or vindictive. Because it says, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the Father on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations. This final attribute of the character of God hones in this in on this idea that God is just. Now we get this idea that God is vengeful or vindictive or that he's spiteful when we isolate this from its context. In the same way, if we just focus on God being merciful and gracious, we don't understand that God is also just. And so what's key for us here in this passage is the balance that is found when we read all of them as a whole. They have to be seen in their context as a created whole. It is better to understand this passage as striking a balance. God is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger, but he also will by no means clear the guilty. When we emphasize one characteristic or attribute of God to the detriment of others, we get into some dangerous places in our understanding of who God is. And this can have a profoundly harmful impact on our theology and how we understand our own relationship with God. The symmetry of these verses helps us to understand and appreciate the tension that exists when we talk about the character of God. In this passage, we see a tension between God's mercy and his justice. And this tension causes us to ask how God will respond to his covenant partners in the nation of Israel who constantly fail as his partners. Now, I want to explore this tension a little bit more to see how it works itself out in the rest of the Old Testament narrative. And so we're going to look at a couple of examples of how this plays out. The first of which is going to be in the book of Numbers. And this is the first time, this is the first instance that this verse is quoted after its original occurrence in Exodus chapter 34. So this is the first time we see it after Moses hears this. Now, the, just for some context here, the Lord has told Moses to send out spies into the land of Canaan, which he is going to give to them. This is the promised land. So Moses sends out 12 spies into the land of Canaan. Now 10 of them come back and they give this report to Moses. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Oh my gosh, the land has all of these remarkable things. See its fruit. They bring fruit back and they hand it to Moses. But the people who live there are powerful, and their cities are fortified and very large. But two spies, Caleb and Joshua, they come back to Moses and they say, we should go up and we should take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. The ten other spies totally disagree with Caleb and Joshua. They say there's no way that we can take this land. So the nation of Israel begins to grumble against Moses and against Aaron. They say, it is better that we should have just died in Egypt. We never should have left slavery. Let us pick for ourselves a new leader, and we're going to go back. 
because we're surely going to die in this land. So let us go back to Egypt. Now, the Lord then becomes angry with the nation of Israel, and he says to Moses, I'm going to kill them all. In essence, it's a very short JD translation of this verse. I'm going to kill them all. He says, I will strike them down with a plague, and I will destroy them. But I will make for you, Moses, a nation greater than this one ever could have been. And at this point, Moses goes before the Lord, and he prays, and he intercedes on behalf of the nation of Israel. And this is Moses speaking, Numbers 14, verse 17. Now the Lord's strength, now may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Here we see an apparent contradiction. In Exodus 34, God says that he will not forgive the guilty. That he will not forgive the guilty. Moses even says this, in verse 18, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Yet Moses concludes here in this instance that God should forgive. Despite the fact that he has already stated that God shouldn't clear the guilty, he says, God, forgive them. You should forgive them. Now, what is the deal with that? This doesn't really seem to make sense. What we see if we look throughout the Old Testament is that when an appeal to God's mercy is made, he almost always responds with mercy. When an appeal to God's mercy and grace is made, almost always he responds with mercy and with grace. I was reading a scholar this week who notes that the logic is that when a righteous person like Moses asks for God's mercy, God delivers. That when a righteous person asks for mercy, God delivers. That is what we see here in Numbers chapter 14. The Lord replies to Moses in verse 20, I have forgiven them as you asked. Simple as that. I have forgiven them as you asked. But this is not without consequence. God says, all those who said that they cannot take possession of the land they're going to die here in the wilderness. They will never see the promised lands. Forty years, he says, you will wander in the wilderness because of your distrust of me. So, here we see both God's mercy, that he would not wipe out the people. But we also see his justice. Those who didn't believe God will not enter the promised land. And we see this dynamic tension taking place between God's mercy and God's justice. And that's what we see here. And the underlying theme in this interaction is the, cons is the consistency of God's character. God will always act in accordance with his character. That is something that we can take to the bank. God will always act in accordance with his character. Character. He will never differ. He will never change. He will never do anything that is outside of his character. 
That is to say that there is a predictability in God's response to humans. And this comes into full view when we compare this to the gods of rival cultures around ancient Israel. We see this here in the biblical narrative. That if you had no idea when you brought a sacrifice to the gods, whether it was going to be good enough, whether it was going to be enough, whether those, that God was in the right mood to receive your sacrifice. We see this in the story of Elijah and the, the prophets of Baal. Baal isn't responding to their offerings. They begin to self-harm and they begin to mutilate themselves in an effort to get this God to respond to them. And this is what sets Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, apart from all other gods. It is his consistency. It is his constancy in his character. And that is something that we can trust in and we know that God is unchanging. So let's look at another example. This one we find in the book of Jonah. And I love this example. This is my favorite one. Now, for those of y'all who don't know the story of Jonah, God comes to this guy named Jonah and tells him to go to the city of Nineveh and to preach against it because all of the people in Nineveh are wicked. So what does Jonah do? Jonah runs in the exact opposite direction. He hops on a boat and sails going the wrong way. Eventually, he gets swallowed up by a real big fish, and this fish then spits him out on the beach. God comes to him again and says, Jonah, go to the city of Nineveh and preach against it, for all of the people there are wicked. Jonah then gets the point. He goes to the city of Nineveh. He preaches to the city of Nineveh, and the entire city repents and turns back to God. It's this remarkable story. The entire city repents and turns back to God. Now, Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But this displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. That is so funny to me. All of these people have just turned back to God, and it says, And Jonah was displeased, and he was angry. In verse 2, And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. This is why I got on the boat. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There's our character of God from Exodus 34 again. And relenting from disaster. Now this is a really funny example because Jonah in his anger accuses God of being consistent in his character. He says, this is why I didn't go. This is why I went to Tarshish. Because I knew that this is what you were going to do. He's angry with God. That God would act in this way towards people that he doesn't like. That's what it boils down to. He's upset that God would act in this way. That God would show grace and mercy towards the city of Nineveh who are people that he does not like. Which is so ironic because God just showed him grace and mercy by spitting him out of a fish that swallows him in the ocean. Jonah could do nothing to prevent God from showing compassion towards those who turn to him. And we're at this theme of consistency again. We see that God does not play favorites. With every generation and apparently with every people group, he will always operate according to his character that is revealed in Exodus 34. 
So much so that Jonah can throw these words in the face of God as an accusation, almost. And what we see in God's character is this promise of stability. It's this promise of predictability in God's response to people. He's merciful and he's just, which brings us a degree of assurance that I always know that I, where I stand with God based on my own behavior and choices. I don't have to wonder. He's going to be like this always for every generation and not change from generation to generation. And I think that that is a significant takeaway for us in these passages. That God is constant. Now, this consistency, this stability, this assurance of God's character is ultimately what we see in the gospel message. You see, God broke into time and space, sending his one and only son so that we might have a way back to right relationship with him. By his death on the cross, we stand, we can stand before God as justified, holy and blameless in his Sight, which is something in all reality that none of us deserve. When we think about our own brokenness, none of us deserve to be able to stand before God as holy and blameless. But this is a gift that is freely offered to each and every one of us. It might be the only gift in the world that is truly without conditions or without limits. Because every other gift in this world has strings attached. And all that's required of us is simply saying yes to a God who has already said yes to you in the person of Jesus. In the work of Jesus, we see God's unfailing mercy and grace. We see how he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. In other words, this is a gift for all people, for all Time, we see that he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. As Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. But we also see that God by no means clears the guilty. Peter tells us in Acts chapter 4 that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. Jesus himself says in John chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life that nobody comes to the Father except through me. It is only through faith in the person of Jesus that we have salvation, that we receive the gift of eternal life that he offers us so freely by no other name and in no other way. The gospel message demonstrates for us the character and the consistency of God in a very beautiful and profound way. It is the consistency of God in his character that has the power to bring us peace and comfort in our own circumstances. When everything else in our life is going haywire, when nothing else in our life seems to go right, when we are gripped by stress and anxiety and nervousness, God is constant. He is steady. He is immutable. 
That is our, your guys' vocab word for the day, which means that he is unchanging. That he will never differ from himself. And we can rest assured of who God is and his character. When everything else in our life is changing, he does not. And what peace it brings to our hearts to realize that our Heavenly Father does not change. In coming to Him at any time, we do not have to wonder whether He will hear us. He is always receptive to our needs, that He always hears our acts of love and faith. He doesn't keep office hours or set aside times where He is inaccessible, nor does He change His mind about anything, including you. Today, this moment, God feels towards us, his creatures, exactly as he did when he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for each and every one of us. God's character never changes. He is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. He forgives our iniquity and transgression and sin. And he by no means will clear the guilty. He is just. When we live out of this understanding of God, we possess, as Paul says, a peace that surpasses all understanding that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Because we know that we have a solid anchor for our soul. His attitude towards us is the same as when he stretched out his hands and he cried, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My friends, let us turn to a God who never changes. Let that be the anchor for our souls, and may we find rest in him. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you, Jesus, that, God, that you are merciful and gracious. Lord, we recognize our own brokenness and our sinful tendencies. Lord, we thank you that you are slow to anger. We thank you that you are abounding in steadfast love and kindness. God, we thank you that you forgive our iniquities and our transgressions and our sins. And Father, we thank you that you are ultimately just. Jesus, we come before you and we see the beauty of who you are, God, and we say that we want more. May we live into the security of a God that is unchanging, May we live into more and more, Lord, your constancy, your consistency, Lord, that you will never differ or change, Father, that when everything else in our life is backwards, Lord, you remain the same. And so now, Jesus, we turn our eyes upon you, Father. We look to you, Jesus. We pray this all in your name.